One thing you should know is that because we're super proud of being in Queens here, if you haven't noticed, we are super proud of being in Queens here, LAC Reading Series. Um, I do ask each of our readers to share a brief personal anecdote about Queens before they read from their work. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our September 11, 2018 event, which is a very special event that had a focus on Queens writers only. We had four readers at this event instead of a regular three, and they were all Queens-based. This is a special event that was in the week leading up to the Brooklyn Book Festival, and LIC Reading Series put together a special book festival bookend event. Um, There were bookend events happening all over the city leading up to the Brooklyn Book Festival, and we decided we wanted to have this one in Queens that really put a spotlight on Queens and brought attention to Queens in that week leading up to the big Brooklyn Book Festival. So in this evening's event, we had readings from Nancy Agabian, Trace DePass, Mira Nair, and Alex Segura. And in our next episode, you get to hear the panel discussion from these amazing Queens writers and amazing Queens literary citizens. Let's jump into LIC Bar together, where we're starting with our first reader, Nancy Agabian. Nancy Agabian is a writer, teacher, and literary organizer working in the spaces between race, ethnicity, cultural identity, feminism, and queer identity. She's the author of a poetry and performance collection, Princess Freak, and a memoir, Mia's Her Again, True Stories of an Armenian Daughter. I think we actually have that one here for sale. Her novel, The Fear of Large and Small Nations, was a finalist for the Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. Her essays have been published in Hyperallergic, The Margins, Quelly, The Brooklyn Rail, and elsewhere. Nancy teaches creative writing at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at NYU, the Leslie Lohman Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art, and through her own writing workshops, Heightening Stories. With writers Amy Paul and Mira Nair, who's also here tonight, she coordinates a bi-monthly reading and activism series at Tarazza 7, Queens Writers Resist. And um, she's just an amazing amazing literary citizen so i'm really looking forward to uh the panel discussion later and we'll talk about writing in queens and all the things that happened she's also on the board of newtown literary journal which is a journal in queens that puts a spotlight on queens writers and i see tim frederick in the back there thank you tim for all you do for newtown um but nancy amazing amazing writer and person and let's give it up for nancy agavian thanks catherine for that lovely introduction and thanks for doing this series to bring us all together and for Queen's writers' voices to be heard. So my anecdote about Queen's is I live in Jackson Heights and and it happens to me frequently that people come up to me on the street and speak Spanish not as frequently, but significantly enough, people, usually South Asian people, uh, will tell me I look Indian or ask if I'm Indian. And whenever these things happen, it makes me really happy because I feel like I belong and like I've been adopted because it will never happen that 
someone comes up to me on the street to speak Armenian, which is my ethnicity, and um, no one will ever say, oh, you look Armenian. So it's just, there's too few of us. Um, so um, imagine my surprise. It was when I first kind of moved to Jackson Heights. I was walking down my street, and I heard people speaking Armenian behind me. And I got very excited and turned around, and it was two older men, and one of them was wearing this, like, one of these hats with the air flaps, and there was, like, a red Soviet star on it. Like, they totally looked Armenian, and I was so excited. <laughs> and said, Dukayek, are you Armenian? I'm Armenian, too. Where do you live? How long have you been in Jackson Heights? There aren't many Armenians in Jackson Heights. And they just you know, did not return my enthusiasm. <laughs> and I thought they were, that I was strange. And then it happened again on the subway. A young couple came on the train like a few years later. And I, it was the R train at 46th Street. And I did the same thing, like, where are you from? And again, they could not care less that I was Armenian. And this is on... This is unusual. Usually when Armenians discover each other, there is excitement like, oh, there's another one of us. Um, so my the meaning I take from this is that in Queens, it really doesn't matter. It's like we all belong. It's, it's, not, a, it's not an issue. Um, so that's my anecdote. Um, and then my reading relates to Queens, too. So this is an excerpt from The Fear of Large and Small Nations, uh, my unpublished novel. Um, what you should know is the protagonist is a second-generation Armenian-American woman who lived in Armenia for a year, gets married to an Armenian man, and they move to Queens, where she is from. Last night, I left a baby on a rock. Unlike the others, this baby wasn't very detailed. It didn't drool or coo or make spastic movements or ever-changing expressions. In fact, it wasn't much different from a doll except that it was heavy, straining my arms as I held it to my chest. I was with friends when I was called away to do something. I'm not sure what, maybe row a canoe or put on a skit. So I laid the baby down on a rock. It was a flat boulder like the kind people sit on in Central Park in between patches of grass. Inevitably, the moment arrived when I realized what I had done, so I rushed back to retrieve the baby, only to find that it was gone. I was beside myself with guilt. How? How could I have left a baby on a rock? Relief came only when I woke up and realized that I never had a baby at all. I've had this recurring nightmare for years in various configurations, leaving babies behind on airplanes, in art museums, and in libraries. It's never my child, but somehow I've been put in charge of its care. I've never been one of those women who felt like her life would be incomplete without a child. I've always felt that I would pursue the idea only if or when the right conditions arose. 
But leaving behind a baby on a rock in the wide open air on such a hard surface and among millions of people was particularly irresponsible and the accompanying regret felt painfully real. Today, Sadon wanted me to take some photos of him to send to his parents. I guess they've been asking him for pictures, but he hasn't been sending any lately because they would hate his hair grown past his shoulders and his full Jesus beard. They think men's hair shouldn't cover their ears. Sadon hasn't cut his hair for two years since we arrived from Armenia, and I can't remember when he started growing the beard. It's black with a sunburst of brown underneath his lip, thick and wiry, dense as a woolen carpet. He resembles a Byzantine-era king, like the kind depicted in profile and bas-relief on an ancient church, with an angular beard covered in swirling curls. To me, he looks beautiful, but last week, Sadon woke up from a nap and scared a baby to tears. My friend Veronica was visiting with her son, Rafi, just as Sadon woke up to go to his job on the graveyard shift. He was sleepy as he appeared in his shorts and tank top, black hair everywhere, his shoulders, chest, legs, head, and face. Rafi was incredibly frightened by this sight, perhaps the closest he'd ever come to a monster, though he'd met Sadon, clean-shaven and much shorter hair, six months before. When he was just a few months old, Sadan had played with him joyfully, cradling him in his arms, singing to him and cherishing him. Back then, Veronica told me how much she loved visiting us, as it reminded her of being in Armenia. Sadan had played the host, roasting fish and vegetables in the oven, serving tea with sweets. But now he was groggy and uncharacteristic cold to the child, who actually shuddered and whimpered in the corner of the room as if he'd seen a ghost. His mom explained that this man was just Sadon, no one to be afraid of, but Sadon did little to assuage the baby. I think it's your long hair, my friend said. He's never acted this way before with anyone. She asked Sadon how he was doing, what he was up to, perhaps to change the tone. Sadon shrugged and sullenly slumped away. If Sadon had just smiled, the child would have calmed down, but Sadon almost seemed to resent Rafi's fear of him. After they left, Sadon said he couldn't believe how big the baby was, now nine months old. He asked, how can you call someone a friend when you haven't seen her for months? I gave him the answer that I always do, that friendship is different in New York. It obviously troubled him that the baby was now so big and that Veronica hadn't turned out to be like the kinds of friends we had in Yerevan, who had time to socialize regularly. To be fair, one reason I haven't been seeing my friends as much is because I'm spending more time with Sadon. I've been trying to give him the sense of belonging he'd given to me when I first arrived in Yerevan, but he doesn't want it. A couple of days later, we took a long walk around Astoria. We wound up and down side streets of old turn-of-the-century homes covered in aluminum siding next to chains of brick houses built before the Depression. Then we visited a bunch of shops, Chinese, Korean, Greek, and Indonesian. He couldn't experience this ethnic diversity in Armenia and is the one thing that still gives him happiness after everything he left behind. We made our way to Little Egypt for Paklava when on a whim he decided to shave off his beard and all of his hair. 
A stylist in a nondescript salon snipped off Sedan's eight-inch ponytail in one piece, claiming he would donate it to a charity that crafted wigs for women who lost their hair from radiation treatment. I whispered to Sedan that the stylist would probably sell it, but Sedan didn't care. He had grown that hair as an expression of his freedom from the repressive conformity of post-Soviet Armenia. Now it was in a Ziploc bag, given away virtuously or for profit. We had no way of knowing. As the buzzer made its way across his face and his head, hair gently sliding off his skin, I flipped through magazines. A few minutes later, I looked up. Noticing a barefoot toddler, a little girl with dark curly hair, wearing a flowered top and diaper-heavy pink pants. She ambled towards me and stared my way, smiling sweetly. I couldn't help smiling back. She giggled as the other stylist knelt down beside her and pretended to poke her in the tummy. How old is she? I asked. Isn't she yours? The stylist replied. I shook my head. We looked around the room. There were no other customers. Sedan's attention was now caught, and he peered at us out of the corner of his eye. Another woman who had just swept up his hair from the floor peeked out the door, where the sky was spreading dusk over the neighborhood. No possible moms were out on the block lined with hookah bars, mostly populated by men who smoked the pipe. Eventually, while the stylist played with her, the sweeping woman called the police, though they suspected that the mother was at the mosque up the street and might have lost track of the child while praying. It had happened before. Still, they speculated what would happen if no one came to claim her. Don't make me take her, one of them joked. There's nothing in my fridge but a can of Red Bull. <laughs> I thought about bringing the child home for a minute. Here we were, Sadon and I, a couple with a home and a refrigerator full of food. Of all the characters in the salon to take care of a baby until the situation was sorted out, we were the most conventional appearing option, even though there was 17 years between us. After I had accepted that he was more than a fling, I entertained the thought we might have a kid someday, along with all the other happy projections into the future one makes at the start of a new relationship. But as our troubles have mounted, I've abandoned that idea. This always happens, the stylist complained. Why can't they watch their kids? The child didn't seem aware that she'd been abandoned. She had discovered a whole new world, smiling and giggling with glee. Eventually, the mosque let out, and the stylist brought the child outside to see if she would be claimed. Suddenly, I heard a wail. The mother in a headscarf was beside herself, crying with grief. Someone in the crowd explained that she hadn't known where the child had disappeared and had been frantically searching for her. Though her baby was now here right in front of her, she felt the same terror as if the child had died. The pain of responsibility was so keen that she couldn't allow herself to feel relieved, weeping for the horrible loss that could have been. I felt a poke to my shoulder, and there was Sadon, bald, with no beard, clean-shaven, and shiny. He appeared to be reborn. Thank you. But now... 
We're going to give it up for Trace to pass, guys. Oh, let me let me introduce you. You got things to say. We got things to say about you. Uh, Trace Howard DePass is the author of Self-Portrait as the Space Between Us, which is the first full-length book published by Pank Books just this year, and um, editor of Scholastic's Best Teen Writing of 2017. He served as the 2016 Teen Poet Laureate for the Borough of Queens. Yay! His work has been featured on television and radio, BET Next Level, Billboard, Blavity, and NPR's The Takeaway, and in print, Anomalous Press, Entropy Magazine, Split This Rock, The Other Side of Violet, Bettering American Poetry, and Voices of the East Coast Youth Poetry Anthology. He is a 2018 Poets House Fellow, and I was super excited. I, you know, we're both in Queens. I met Trace in Florida. <laughs> Um, that's where the AWP conference was this year. And there he was at the Pank table, AWP, the Association of Writers, Writers and Writing Programs has this yearly conference. It was in Tampa. And there we met and I was like, whoa, you're, you're from Queens. You're, you're the teen, you're the teen poet lord of Queens. We got to have you LIC reading series. So let's give a big warm round of applause to Trace to pass. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's good. Hey. How's everyone? Good, good. Uh, so I have to begin with an anecdote about my city, my my borough, my, my stomping grounds. Um, uh, I'm Trace again. I'm a poet, playwright, et cetera. I do stuff. I play the drums sometimes. Um, uh, I love Queens uh, because of its ability to put two things into one space. <laughs> Do you know what I mean when I say this about Queens, you know? So uh, Queens is the type of place to have a, a jeweler in the middle of a pharmacy, right? <laughs> you know, I, I personally, myself, live above a dentist's office and a studio apartment, which also functions as a rehearsal studio where, pe where bands can come in and stuff like that. Uh, that's my personal narrative. Thanks. Um, yeah, so this uh, this book is Self-Portrait as a Space Between Us. This is actually me and my father. Uh, this book explores uh, form. First and foremost, I guess, uh, when you look at this, you'll see a lot of things that look like uh, sonnets and a whole bunch of different forms like spread across the page, landscape, vertical, omnidirectional, a whole bunch of different types of dimension. Um, and also about uh, masculinity, uh, the aftermath of violence, uh, police violence, sexual violence, uh, and all of this at the intersection of blackness as well. Uh, the first poem in this book is derived from a conversation I actually had between me and uh, another male friend of mine, also black. Um, and where he's talking to me about sexual violence that he had endured, trigger warning, content warning, I'm going to go here. This is what it's about. Um, and he, I, I basically had responded to him in, in, in this conversation, like, where, where do you see the shame? You know, like, where is the shame at, you know, that we're expected to feel and uh navigate with 
Um, and here's the poem. Requiem for the boy telling of the time his body was not his. Who asks me, what does this make me? But only asks me, should I have regrets? Because I don't. Who too hears the, so the sweet siren of train track that I know all too well. There's no shame in those days where God does not act surely exist. You ain't less than the boy you were before. And neither of you died then. You know, you can still hold breath, hold your nose, close your mouth, and still hear the sound of a knuckle crack. And so you are st still here and with a dap before the goodbye that he is far too comfortable with saying, I try to make him feel as though we are too young to be unmade here. And I say, I'm glad you're here, man. And I love you, bro. And hit me up when you get to your crib. And when he does get there, my phone rings. Thanks. Uh, uh, I love the author Terrence Hayes. I think he's pretty cool. Uh, he has a book called uh, American Sonnet from My Past and Future Assassin. Uh, and I, so I made my own American sonnet after him uh, about feet. It was a prompt I was given. Uh, and so I tried to see like how I can push feet like metaphysically or whatever. Yeah, like where does feet go? <laughs> As an idea. Uh, American sonnet for the terrains black boy ghosts play on barefoot inside us after Terrence Hayes. On days I haven't ne completely neglected the work of having toes. I pray I'm dexterous enough to cartwheel and not paint the grass with all my boy fumble. Should I want to hand these falls to science, not silence? Poets are chemists we know, privileged catalysts for X. Why? That's how my body triggers on the inside. But I know some obsessed with how a world waits once it collides with another. Often my eyes are crashed worlds beneath skull, its cap often my sky. And what stores itself behind my iris is moon quiet. Perhaps mountains mean to be mountains inside, under the eye. This is why we shudder, shut out, shiver, cry. Himalayan salts. At least here, when my bad boys nudge earth, the sound of dirt cannot deny I am the world. We swung from off its guide, bent on forgiving the unknown space, the near nothing cupping infinitesimal dark. And from whose God heard the Nova's spark noise, I need my bad boys out to know what's here. Thanks. Uh, Does everyone here know what a contrapuntal is? Yeah? Cool, cool, cool. So you know the musical term. I'm referring to a poetic uh, form or device. A contrapuntal is essentially a poem that, could, that is usually written in two or more columns, like two pages, but on one page. And it could be read down one side, down its other, and also across. There's an author named Taim Bajess who can do this and then back up. Taim Bajess, yeah, ta yeah, you know. Yeah, he won a Pulitzer for that. Um, <laughs> literally, literally, like, yeah. Um, I appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs> You're good. You're great.
Uh, this is the second poem now in the book. Uh, I'm going to read it regular <laughs> across uh, and then the next poem and then I'll beat it. Um, Monarch's butterfly. Oh, sorry. It's called Requiem for the Butterfly Effect. It's a pun. It imagines if we took the butterfly effect literally, a butterfly slaps its wings and all of a sudden we have slavery. That's the poem. Thank you for walking in just now. Um, Monarch's butterfly tripped over its wings and it was likely I would walk the plank or walked with shackles, watching water become my audience, shushing itself to swallow sustenance and spit me back out like the rest of them. Vittles and now skulls where the dead used to sing and had a song, become earth's nectar. Like all the rest of them, I am still here. I took one step forward, then two steps back, making a habit out of dancing on death's toes. We don't flinch. Out all my nerves, most left not long after we had departed that. We had left that land, left it for floorboards, left Africa for whitewashed wooden ships, purpled with black blood, rotting with dead folk and repetition, green men with gray bullets and no mothers, no God, no witness. When I was about to plunge off that plank, I saw the butterfly that held my fate. I thought I would jump and realize that the ship is still buoyant, whether it be with or without dead weight. It did not matter. Still don't matter. We would all become slaves. There were no options besides our own death soon. If not, then late. Cool. Uh, and, uh, good? Yeah. Okay. Um, and last piece. Um, this is about a dog, a pit bull that uh, literally could not jump, uh, and was very afraid to walk up and down stairs, afraid to bark or use its mouth. Uh, and I wondered what it took to get a dog like that. And I wondered about neglect and bodies and allegory and George Orwell, right? Um, so this is lament of the slave who does not jump about a dog. Dogs from the dark don't carry a name, like appendages for our extensions of self. And I could not tell you exactly how dark, because how do us dogs put this dark into our mouth and hand it to you without a language as stained as English? Falling or about to each time I'd blink, I only know that no one would hear me. It was so black in our basement that when I'd fall, I didn't know for how long. I just know a good boy has feelings, that I slept on splinters, Climbed up what I assumed was a mountain terrace that would lead me to me outside of a body in the dark and I woke with a fresh new gash in me each morning. The wood, if not blood itself, reminds me us dogs have certain questions for the self and mortality once we fall. I sniff out black and question my own dog. But if someone stared or cared enough to know beyond the past of my crooked canine to simply ask me the question, why you play so aggressively, boy? I guess my appendages stay so pressed in disagreement against your small, because I need to know for certain that something is tangible enough to be walked on here. I dip myself into anywhere, like how human boys do to test water. And you are the one that has given it this name, Play. I just need to feel like I'm digging for at least a name. And if I could imagine heaven for dogs as reparation, it would land smack dab during dogs about face fall, but instead, mountainside up to the sky and to a top of endless names and there like God you'd hold whole names like hands or teeth that keep mine away from hands and teeth each name still yours I guess to bring it concise I await the dark of your mouth to give me at least a name for some part of me and if you asked me why don't you leave ground how come you don't jump it's because I'm too scared to ask who ground is like what is ground 
do? How does ground function? How are we so sure there is a ground? See, if ground hurt me, then it is more than just ground that has kept me up, I'd say. But dogs from the dark don't bark, just play, crawl, just teeth, love, here. Perhaps I could call you mine, and you could call me mine. And perhaps in English it means we still have when we cannot see what was or rather could have been ours. Keep clapping for Trace, guys. <clears throat> Next up is Mira Nair. Mira Nair is the author of Video, uh, New York Pantheon, which is right here for sale from a story bookshop and, and two middle grade children's books published in India with Duckbill Publishing. Video won the sixth annual Asian American Literary Award, was a Washington Post Best Book of the Year, and was shortlisted for the Kiriyama Pacific Rim Prize. Her essays and stories have appeared in Guernica, Three Penny Review, Calix, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, NPR's Selected Shorts, and Kira, among others. She's won residency fellowships from the McDowell Colony, like just a small little place that you've never heard of. Oh, um, amazing and writing fellowships from the New York Foundation for the Arts, the New York Times, and the Queens Council for the Arts. Yay, Queens Council and the Arts. She was, <laughs> I love that you guys love Queens so much. Who here lives in Queens? Everybody. Oh my God, this is amazing. I love it. Everybody. Well, if you don't, it's cool. You're welcome here. Um, she was the writer in residence, because we're Queens. She was the writer in residence at Fordham University from 2011 to 2014, and currently teaches writing at NYU and Brooklyn College. As a community activist, she teaches creative, creative writing to new immigrants and is a co-founder of the reading series Queens Writers Resist, also with Nancy here. She also lives in Jackson Heights, Queens. Um, there's so many amazing things that Mira has written. I love all of your essays and like, the stuff that you write for The Guardian. And I'm so excited to have you here to read tonight. Let's give a big round of applause for Mira. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. So many friends in the audience. It's wonderful to see you all. Thank you for that amazing, amazing reading. <laughs> and thank you, Catherine, for having me here. Um, so I'm in a car, uh, in a cab, and I always talk to the taxi drivers because that's the best part of it all, right? You know, of that of their ride. So I'm talking to him, and he's he's like, oh, you are from India? I was like, yes. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, it's hard to hide, okay? And then, <laughs> so then he's like, oh, okay. Sorry, I'm not talking to you because I'm talking to my wife. I was like, okay. He's talking to his wife. So he was actually talking to his wife in Pakistan. And he was talking really loudly. And he was saying the most amazing, beautiful, but very intimate things to her. <laughs> And I was like, well, what do I do? <laughs> but I was like, you know what? I'm a writer. I listen to people's conversations. That's it. So I'm just listening. And 
they sang to each other they fought over how his mother was being really mean to her then she said what she had for lunch and dinner and what what he had for lunch and dinner it was so beautiful and and just you know that idea of that like long distance longing was so familiar to me because i have all my people are back home and i just know what that is to sit on that phone for hours and hours and listen to the sounds the birds in some country in that country over there and and you know the honking of the auto rickshaw or whatever it is that you're hearing and have this kind of weird dual existence where you are one body and two minds you know so that was that was my queen's experience <laughs> So I'm going to read two short pieces because I know I'm like your seven minutes is like um, so <laughs> so I'm going to read um, two very short pieces and one is set in Brooklyn and the other is set I don't know where um, actually in Kansas okay so <laughs> um, this one's called Voyeur. There's a man on the roof and he's tying a noose. He's tall and slim and too close to the roof's thin edge, a hundred feet above the Brooklyn street she's waiting to cross, and she doesn't want to stop. She's late for her shift at the hospital, but there's a look about him, an alert stillness, as if he's vibrating in place, and her high heels falter mid-step, and she can't look away when he, in a deft, practiced, almost professional move, drops the noose around his neck. It's neat, coiled heaviness rests comfortably against the front of his cream shirt like a fashion ac accessory, like it's a bespoke tie woven by artisans to fit the exact length of his torso. And as he raises a hand to adjust the free end that emerges from the precise spirals of the hangman's knot, a car honks beside her and the driver leans out and calmly says, watch where you're going, bitch. And she stumbles back onto the pavement, her heart pounding with fear. Or Perhaps it's anticipation, she can't tell, and hurries up the steps of a brownstone nearby from where she can see the man on the roof at a better angle. She looks around and sees that no one else has noticed him, this tall man on the roof who has not moved from his place in the meanwhile, who now bends his spine back in an elastic arc, then straightens back up and thrusts one taut leg out, then in like a wing, stretches his long arms up, light and free to the sky, as if he's an athlete preparing to run, or maybe a dancer, a Fred Astaire of the rooftop. It occurs to her then that she's chanced upon a performance, a solitary, ironic, artistic act, like Banksy painting a mural under a bridge. This is New York City, after all. Stranger things have happened. Of course, that's what it is. What with the news and all? A spectacle, she thinks, relieved. The weight of guilt and responsibility lifting, replaced with a secret thrill, the frisson she expects voyeurs feel watching unknown people perform private rituals alone, and the thought comes unbidden. He was hers. At this moment, he was hers. In this crowd, in this place, she alone has witnessed this man with a noose around his neck. No one else is watching in that great evening stampede that floods past her, everyone staring at their phones or feet or companion or slice of pizza. No one glancing up, no one noticing the blatant pink Brooklyn sunset or Instagramming the man who has now moved so close to the very edge of the roof. She can see the black tips of his shoes 
teeter over the void as he stands there relaxed, fingers on the rope. She should name him, she thinks, her own secret name, James or Peter or Juan, and when he, her James, looks in her direction, his expression slightly amused, almost as if he's laughing a little inside. It's as if the two of them are alone, twinned, bonded across the arc of the street, and she thinks she's completing his performance, validating it by being the viewer. For doesn't every performance need a viewer for it to become one? Only now, he's gone from the edge, walking away across the flat roof, and she wants him back. Come back, she clamors in her head. Come back, here I am. And sure enough, he returns, as if her need called across the space between them. But this time, the noose is higher up against his throat and turned front to back, and the free end no longer free, but anchored out of sight. And she knows, oh God, now she knows what he's planning to do, knows also that she's known it all this lost time, just as she knows the unbearable aftermath written in some resident doctor's scrawl, ischemic cerebral damage due to neck compression, elevation and posterior displacement of the tongue, occlusion of the cartoid artery, and she thinks, move, idiot, don't just stand here watching, her hand already on the cool rectangle of her phone, already dialing 9-1, imagining the words, operator, man, roof, noose, that's what she should do, save a life. Only she looks back up and is transfixed at him, standing there, body loose and ready, set, head tipped back, to look at the birds flung like charred fragments of paper against the same sky one more time. And she asks herself, what if he doesn't want to be saved? Isn't his will, his decision evident in the careful knots, the preparation, the practice movements? She tells herself that she... Yet he has been deliberate, meticulous, determined in his planning this, his last performance. And in that moment, she thinks she loves him more than she has loved anyone else and understands then with a sick slither in her stomach that he's condemned like her. But she wants to let him go unremarked with nothing for Facebook or Twitter, no series of pictures on Tumblr, no news for the avid world and watch alone, fascinated from a true from a stoop in Brooklyn as a man steps off the ledge, the rope uncoiling behind him and dives into the air and for a heartbreaking instant states picture perfect, suspended. Sorry guys, <laughs> that's a little downer. Um, okay, so I don't know. I can't write about happy things for some reason. Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> um, so this next piece, which is also really short, it's that's it, um, is called An Alternate History. And it's, um, I wrote it after I heard um, about the Indian man who was shot in a bar in Kansas. Uh, his name was Srinivas Kuchibotla. And he was, he was having a drink in the bar and some guy came up to him and thought he was Iranian or something and uh, shot him dead. Um, and I read a Facebook post from his wife and it said, I wish that you had come home when I asked you to have tea. Um, so this and her name, uh, his wife's name is Sunaina Dumala. And uh, anyway, so this is what I wrote. 
The well water measured into the pan, your mother's breath fattening the flame, the scent of burning wood, the pink threads of dawn outside the kitchen window, her patient stoop over the stove, each movement still weighted with sleep. And then, once the water boils, the quickening attention to milk and tea leaves, the sharp brown smell rising, the pan grabbed off the fire, the quick stir of sugar before the tea is poured in a high, long stream into the stainless steel glass that is thrust into your waiting hand. This is the memory you carry into your new country. Your husband, who loves your wild hair and your face soft as a child's, comes from poor people. As a student in America, you've learned that no one cares. No one knows you, and the old resentments of blood and soil and caste don't matter. Yet, it took years of strenuous argument before you were allowed to become his wife. Your husband decides he won't be poor ever again. Your months grow frantic and jangly with work. He talks to the phone more than he talks to you. There are quotas and deadlines, the hours swallowed by the long tunnel of the screen. For the second time this week, you haven't laid eyes on each other for 15 hours. He bolts down his dinner and then goes back to work until 2 a.m. This is America, though. It's not as if you can appeal to an elder who will scold him for forgetting that marriages need time and watering. The two of you are alone here, unmoored. Immigrants in an indifferent country. Orphans, even though your parents are alive and full of questions. Indians without India. Your husband is six feet two and handsome as the actors in the films the two of you watch on weekends, curled up on the sofa, pleased at the familiar jokes and storylines. The movies have songs, shamelessly sentimental, full of rain and mountains and longing. Your husband, your brown boy, thinks he's strong, thinks he's giving nothing away when he sings them around the house. You don't tell him that his voice, when it breaks, lodges a stone deeper in your chest. Still, each year, your kitchen takes on a new appliance, your house, new rooms. It's okay, you say. It's okay. Some days are good, though. Like the days you come home from work early, you make pakoras, Taste the satisfying crunch of one before you set them aside and wait. You call your husband and tell him to come home for tea. I'm going out, he says, with a friend after work. We'll catch the game, get a drink. They call us the Jameson boys at the bar, he laughs. I'll be home soon. No, you say, flirting a little. Please, come now. When he walks in, you make tea the way your mother does, cracking cardamom pods with your teeth before dropping them into the water, digging into the bright red box of Lipton Red Label to scoop out the dark leaves inside, take pleasure in the slow, patient swish of the spoon. You hand him the tea in a stainless steel glass, part of a set some auntie gave you as a wedding gift six years ago. Then comes the part you love, the safe silence between you the evening light in the windows, the distant murmur of the game on the radio somewhere, the insects clicking in the lawn grass, the bittersweet taste that lingers in the mouth, and then his eyes rising from his cup to your face and that slow, quiet smile. The day paused like a drawn breath. Thank you.
More applause for Mira. You can write about dark stuff all you want because that's, is I mean, it's not all dark. It's like there's beauty and it's, uh, it was really powerful writing. Thank you so much. I, I Thank you to all three of our readers for like that first intense half of the LIC reading series. All right, we're gonna have one more reader. Um, and our final reader tonight is Alex Segura. That's how your, your name is pronounced with a long A, right? Segura. Okay. Alex Segura is the author of the Pete Fernandez Miami mystery novels, which includes Silent City, Down the Darkest Street, Dangerous Ends, and Blackout. Blackout's here and a, a couple of the other ones in the series as well, all via Polis Books. Blackout was listed as one of the most anticipated mystery novels of 2018 by Crime Reads. Mystery People and BookBub and included in the Boston Globe summer reading list. And I can tell you, um, it's a mystery uh, series, but you can read any one of them as a standalone. Just heads up. I have. They're great. He has also written a number of comic books, including Archie Meets Kiss Storyline, The Oc <gasps> oh! <laughs> The Occupy. <laughs> You have a fan over here from the Astoria Bookshop. <laughs> the Occupy Riverdale story, Archie Meets Ramones. I mean, Hello Queens, also. And The Archies. Alex is also a co-writer on Lethal Lit, a new fictional crime podcast launching this fall. Has it launched yet? Nope. Next month from iHeartMedia. Um, he also runs a reading series, and I always love fellow reading series runners. So let's give a big round of applause for Alex. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, thanks to the Astoria Bookshop. Thanks, LIC Reading Series, for having me. I'll be your mystery outlier for tonight. Um, my anecdote is about Queen. About Queens is kind of about the self sufficiency of Queens. Uh, my my series is set in Miami. Blackout. All, all four books are set in Miami. There is one scene in Kew Gardens, which is where I live. So I'll read from that. Um, but I have really vivid memories of. You know, moving to New York, I kind of had a really sweet deal. I got to stay with my aunt and I was, uh, you know, in my 20s, got my first job in publicity. And I thought I was like, you know, hot shit moving to New York, living in uh, living in Soho with them. And then reality hit a few months in and they kind of said, you have to move. You know, you're making it <laughs> you're making a living. You should get your own apartment. Um, you know, weird, weird. Um <laughs> And I found a room. I found a room and it was in this, it sounded nice, Woodhaven, Queens. I'd never been to Woodhaven's Queens. So I took a cab. I looked at the space. I was fine with it. Um, and I went to go sign the lease and I'd never, being from Miami where there's no functional mass transit, I'd never been on an overhead train. Um, and I just remember that sense of this is this is how it's going to end. I was taking the J train, <laughs> taking the J train from, uh, from Delancey to wherever I was going. I wasn't really sure. Woodhaven. And just that vibrating of the train, I was like, this is it. This Miami boy dies as train overturns over over Queens. But the point is, I got there, I, I took the apartment. And I think it's weird because people always seem to think Queens is so far away. And it's really not that far yet. However, if you don't live in Queens, you feel when someone says, I, you know, I'll see you in Queens, it's a sense of other, you know. Um, and so you know, now I had to pay rent. I wasn't really making that much money. So I spent a lot of time 
in my neighborhood. And I remember being really dis disconnected from home, my parents, my family. Um, and the only thing that really soothed me was that train, that sound of that overhead train. And that's what really kind of gave me that sense of comfort and being at home. I eventually moved to Inwood for a little while and I had issues sleeping when I moved to Inwood because I didn't have that, that sound. So I ended up back in Queens. Um, I live in Kew Gardens now with my wife and um, our young son. So I, I really thought this was going to be a safe space from potty training talk, but it was not. <laughs> uh, it's okay. It's okay. Just uh, he does his celebratory thing whenever he does his stuff. Like I did it. Like he just won the Super Bowl. It's very cute, but it's also uh, it's, it's a little PTSD-ish. Um, anyway, once I got to Queens the second time, I really did the same thing, though a little more thoughtfully, which is to immerse myself in the community. I started a reading series called uh, Noir at the Bar Queens. Uh, it's been going for about five years, and that's a chance for up-and-coming mystery writers, local mystery writers, or established mystery writers to read from their work, uh, to sell their stuff. We've, we've partnered with the Storia Bookshop in the past. We also have done stuff with Q and Willow, which is the other indie bookstore uh, right down the street from us. Um, so Queens all the love. Uh, and that's my kind of meandering anecdote. <laughs> um, so all you need to know about uh, my mystery series is that Pete Fernandez is a former journalist. He's a recovering alcoholic. Um, he's just a general screw up. He's the kind of person that stumbled into being a private investigator. At the beginning of Blackout, he's left Miami because there's a bounty on his head and he's moved to Rockland County. New York. Uh, and at this point, there's a case that's pulled him back to Miami where, you know, by stepping back into Miami, he's he's putting his life at risk. And the case is basically that this this, you know, uh, you know, state senator from Florida is looking to run for governor, but he needs to clear up th some things from his past, namely this son that has a very he's basically the black sheep of the family. So he's He's paying Pete to find his son and usher him into a dark room where they can lock him up and he can run for governor in peace. Um, so he's he's tracked this guy, Stephen McRyan, who also has many a pseudonym, to Kew Gardens, Queens, which I know very well. Uh, so I'll read a little bit of that. Um, here we go. The Mowbray was a six-floor pre-war apartment building in Kew Gardens, Queens, just a few steps from where Kitty Genovese had screamed for help. And if you believe the original legend was ignored by 30 or so people before being stabbed to death. Since then, that bit of lore has been debunked, putting New York City's reputation as an emotionless and cutthroat metropolis on the line. Pete watched the building from across the street, huddled under an after-school learning center's faded orange awning. It was close to two in the morning, and he was debating whether to take the direct approach and knock on Stephen McRyan's door, or wait a few more hours until the guy walked outside. Sometimes the latter got you better info. You could tail the target and see what his routines were or who he communicated with. This intrigued Pete, but he knew it was of little interest to McRyan's high-powered parents. They wanted their kid tucked away and put on ice for a while. Stephen McRyan, also known as Kenny Sampson, was living under the name Sammy Wolven, working odd jobs around the neighborhood and doing sporadic Uber runs in his banged-up Toyota Matrix. When Pete, which Pete saw, was now parked in front of the building... Pete knew this background thanks to a few favors he'd called in, the first to a New Jersey detective named Francisco Rivella, an old friend of Pete's from before his P.I. days. Together, they'd spent many a night getting blotto in cheap New Brunswick and Newark bars during a time when Pete still considered himself a sports writer. The older cop was on the verge of putting in, putting in his papers and moving down south. 
To what do I owe the honor, Ravella had said. I need a favor. Sounds about right. Haven't talked to you since that business with Gigi Garcia and the Dunn guy. Pete had made a return visit to New Jersey a few years back to do Ravella solid and help investigate a missing persons case. It was time to cash in that chip. Yeah, Pete said. I'm in New York. I've settled in for a bit. I'm only hearing from you now. Pete cleared his throat. How did you explain to an old friend the difficulty that came with seeing him? The feeling and habits that bubbled up. He'd spent most of his time with Ravel at bars, knocking back drink after drink, musing about the world, discussing old movies like The Night of the Hunter and Out of the Past. It was a hallway Pete didn't walk down much these days for a reason. The fond memories brought back a thirst that Pete couldn't survive. Yeah, I'm sorry, Pete said. Been keeping a low profile. I'm up in Rockland, too. No one likes coming there. What do you need? He told him. Ravella cut the guilt trip he'd been laying on Pete short and said he'd get back to him in a few hours. As promised, the older detective called up with an address and instructions. You're damn lucky, Ravella said. So do me a favor when you, when you nab this guy. Sure, spill. Got a buddy, old source of mine, opened an Indian restaurant a few blocks from where you, your guys hold up, Ravella said. Throw him a couple bones and tell him I said hello. Then maybe even grab, grab a bite there. I'm not fond for Indian food. It's too spicy, but I hear good things about the place. Good Yelp reviews, Pete said. Excuse me? Pete laughed. Yeah, I'll do that, he said. Thanks. Well, my pal's basically the town gossip. Sees everything, knows everyone. You're in luck. He says your mark keeps to himself mostly, Ravella said. Eccentric, unless he's working. He only seems to come out for groceries or to catch a movie at the theater down the block. On off days, he says the guy talks to himself and just seems way weird. Something ain't right, is what he told me. Got it, Pete said. I'll take him down easy. Nothing you do is easy if I remember it right. That hasn't changed, Pete said. Now we're even, I guess, Ravella said, a twinge of regret in his creaking voice. I'll let you know how it goes, Pete said. We can grab a bite when I'm back in town. Ravella coughed into the phone, a wet lingering noise. It didn't sound good. Yeah, let's do that, Ravella said. Got lots to catch up on. After Pete clicked off with the detective, he was swallowed by a wave of anxiety, like a dark shadow falling over him on a bright spring day. He knew the cop was older, and cops didn't age gracefully. He'd have to make a visit to his friend once he returned. Pete checked the time on his phone and waited. His, his thoughts veered, veered back to earlier that day and the DeCalvacante gangsters. Side note, he was cornered by gangsters and managed to avoid getting murdered. So, cheerful memory. Why would two New York-made guys want to take him out? It was unlikely that they were under contract. Drugs and mafia don't mix, at least not officially. Pete knew of a lot of made guys who ran horse or oxy on the side or put a little money into the cartels, but it was never sanctioned. So picking up a murder contract from a Miami drug gang seemed out of the question. Still, Pete had pissed off many people over the years. It could be anyone, he thought. McRyan lived on the third floor overlooking Austin Street and the Long Island Railroad Station. Pete noticed his kitchen light flicker on behind the curtains, and he knew it was time to move. He walked into the building's foyer and pushed a few of the apartment call buttons. Eventually, an annoyed voice blared through the lobby intercom. Hello? UPS, Pete said. In the middle of the night? What the fuck? The woman said, her static, loaded voice heavy with sleep. Urgent delivery, ma'am. The door buzzed, and Pete walked in, making a beeline for the elevator. He got off on the third floor and turned right. He'd felt for his Glock nestled in a holster under his left arm. 
He hadn't seen Stephen McRyan or Kenny Sampson or whatever his name was in years, but what little he remembered was bad. Pete wanted to be ready. He rapped on the door of 3H and waited. He heard rustling on the other side. Pete had hoped that by showing up so late he would catch McRyan off guard, and that surprise would allow Pete to not only take talk to him, but convince him to return to Miami. At the very least, Pete could confirm where Stephen McRyan was holed up. Who is it? Pete took a step back. The voice coming through the door was drowsy, which wasn't surprising. What was surprising was that it belonged to a woman. Pete hadn't banked on McRyan shacking up with someone. I'm looking for Stephen McRyan, Pete said, trying to put on his best official business voice. Who? He may be going under the name of Sammy Wolven, Pete said. The door opened a crack, still hooked onto, still hooked onto the latch lock. Through the slit of space, Pete could see a dark-haired woman with tan skin and curious eyes. She was a little younger than Pete, younger than McRyan, and beautiful. Her long black hair cloaked her smooth features and softened her questioning eyes. Sammy isn't here, she said. Plus, who's asking? My name's Pete Fernandez. I'm a private investigator. I need to speak with your boyfriend. What's your name? Nancy. And Sammy isn't my boyfriend, okay, she said. Pete had expected to get a ri- Pete had expected it to get a rise out of her. Where did- what is he? We're friends, she said. He lets me crash here when when I need to. Any idea where he is now? Gone, she said. Long gone. Thanks. LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Our theme music is by longtime LIC resident Pat Irwin.